I am blessed to introduce to you a, uh, a mentor and a pastor who has been all in uh, for 41 years uh, as a Methodist pastor, 28 years in South Carolina uh, as the lead, our best pastor in South Carolina, I, I safe to say. I was serving uh, in Conway when I first met Bill Balknight. He was a pastor of First Methodist Myrtle Beach. And uh, I looked upon him as a mentor, somebody I could learn from. And, and I learned a lot from Bill Balton. I'd also learned how to, how to chase a turkey uh, with uh, him in a turkey field. And uh, we had some good times, Bill, back in those days. Bill then went from uh, South Carolina and spent 13 years as, a, as the senior pastor at Christ United Methodist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, one of our flagship churches in the denomination. He's been a mentor. He's been a leader. He is a strong advocate for uh, evangelical United Methodist beliefs in our denomination. And so he and I are strongly on the same page in those regards. He is, he's married to Gloria, has two sons, and we're blessed to have him join our preaching team during this season. And so would you give me, would you give Bill Baltonite a warm Mount Horb welcome? Thank you. I greet you in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Lord. And I want to thank you and Pastor Jeff for allowing me to, to be a, an occasional uh, preacher in this great church. Officially, I am retired, but the word retirement is not in the Bible. And I have made a solemn commitment that as long as I have breath in my lungs and a fairly reliable brain, I'm going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, my wife has said that if I start repeating myself too often, she'll tell me that it's time to stop. But thank you so much for letting me be an occasional pinch hitter in the pulpit of this great, great church. Let us pray. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our thoughts and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Unless you speak, nothing of significance will be spoken. Give us your word, Lord Jesus. Amen. The famous writer Ernest Hemingway in one of his novels told a story that long ago captivated my heart. It was about a father and his teenage son who lived in the big city of Madrid, Spain. And the son's name was Paco, which is a very common name in Spain, sort of like Jim or Paul in America. Father and son did not get along well. Paco thought that Papa's rules were too strict. And so, almost every day, there was friction between them. And finally, one day, it just exploded. And Paco said, I hate you, and I hate this house, and I'm getting my things and leaving and won't be coming back. And the father, who was sort of angry by that time, said, Hey, if that's the way you feel, get out. Good riddance. The father thought, maybe it'll do him good to be away a while and maybe he'll appreciate home more. He'll be back by midnight or first thing in the morning. But midnight came, no Paco. Morning came, no Paco. 
By the following night, the father's paternal instincts had begun to kick in. Worried, where in the world is this teenager spending the night in this big city? Who's he with? The next day, no Paco, and Papa's really getting worried. He goes to some of Paco's friends. Have you seen him? No. Went to some of the places he used to frequent. No Paco. By the fourth day, Papa is desperate. And so he goes to the main newspaper in Madrid, Spain. Took out an ad in the paper, which read as follows. Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper building tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. Signed, Papa. The next day at noon, in front of the newspaper building, 800 Pacos showed up, <laughs> all longing for reconciliation with fathers. And in that huge group of Pacos was this one particular Paco that this father was looking for. That's a great homecoming story that speaks to our hearts, but oh, I know a better one, the one that was read to you a moment earlier. The story of the prodigal son even non-Christian experts in literature say this was the greatest short story ever written in any language. So drenched is it with the dews of heaven that only Jesus could have told it. And the story tugs at our hearts because all of us have a homecoming yearning in our souls. We long to meet the one who created us to fulfill the purpose for which we were created, to fill up the God-shaped hole inside us. All of us long for homecoming with God the Father. We call this the story of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means one who spends money with reckless extravagance. And the story can easily be divided into a four-act drama. And I want you to see if you can locate yourself in one or more of these four acts. In Act 1, that's verse 12, we find a teenage son demanding of his father, give me my share of the estate. Now, the father was a wealthy farmer, had two sons. Older one, second in command, well-behaved, utterly responsible, hard worker on the farm. The younger son, Hated the farm, wanted out of there. Notice there's no mention of his mother. That's interesting. Now, you know, particularly in that era, it was not at all uncommon for women to die in childbirth. And maybe this happened in the case of the prodigal. Let's suppose it did, and you're the father. If the, if the boy had had a, had a mother who died giving him birth, maybe would you as father pamper him a little bit? You'd be trying to be both mother and father. Would you maybe indulge him some? Spoil him a bit? What happens if you spoil and indulge a child? He becomes a reckless teenager. And that's exactly, baby, what happened in this case. The boy demanded, give me my share of the estate. I want what's coming to me when you're dead. Just imagine the arrogant disregard for the father's feelings. I want to live as if you're dead. The father gave him what he asked. The father probably had to sell some of the ancestral property in order to give him his share of the estate. But that's what he did. Gave it to him. 
And the boy hustled off to the far country. Whatever the ancient equivalent of Las Vegas was, that's where he went. He was sick of the farm. He wanted some thrills you don't get on the farm. No. Yeah, he wanted to sample life in the fast lane. Yes. And off he went. And at first he made a lot of friends. Or, or at least he thought they were friends. Because when a country boy goes to the big city with a lot of money on him, he attracts folks. Oh, yeah, some good time Charlies were with him. Oh, yeah, they would help him party and gamble as long as he would pay the bills. And I imagine there were some good time gals who would help him make it through the night as long as he was covering the tab and treating them generously. Yeah, he had what he thought were a lot of friends around. The great theologian Willie Nelson <laughs> recorded a song about those kind of people. Has some lines like, if you've got the money, honey, I've got the time. But if you run out of money, then I'll have no more time. Before long, the boy's money ran out. And those so-called friends left. And the country kicked into recession. He couldn't even pay his bill at the YMCA. He couldn't buy a decent meal. He was desperate and finally took a job doing what no self-respecting Jewish kid would ever do. Take a job slopping hogs. And there in the pig pen, ankle deep in the muck, he thought to himself, how in the world did I get into such a mess? Did you know that pig pens come in all shapes and disguises and you don't even have to have pigs around to be in a pig pen? Yes. I'll tell you the definition of a pig pen. If your life is more a burden than a blessing, you're in a pig pen. If your life is more a burden than a blessing, you're in a pig pen. Some years ago, my family was vacationing at beautiful Litchfield Beach, and we had our umbrella up, lawn chairs out, blanket down, having a good time. There was a family adjacent to us that I noticed, and the husband or father was fidgeting. He couldn't sit still. He was up and down and all around. And finally, he and I got into a close enough proximity to have a little conversation. And he introduced himself, and he happened to be an attorney from Tennessee. And he was part of a major law firm in that state. And indeed, he was a partner in the law firm. And I could also tell that he was about half drunk. And when he found out I was a pastor, he really started talking. People often do when they find you're a pastor. And one statement he made, I remember so clearly. He said, I'm okay as long as I work, but when I have to go home or on vacation or be alone, I have to drink in order to survive. That man was in a pig pen even with his six-figure income. Let's move on to Act 2. This is verse 17. And Jesus, the master storyteller, packs so much meaning into 
just one phrase, not even a complete sentence. Referring to the prodigal, he says, when he came to his senses. Jesus is saying that up to that time, the boy was not thinking straight. He was sort of spiritually deranged, detached from reality. But suddenly he snaps out of it as though from amnesia. And now his heart and his vision are corrected. And he sees life honestly. And then the boy says, I don't belong here. I ought to be in my father's house. And Jesus, the master storyteller, is paying you and me a huge compliment at this point. Because Jesus is saying that when we are thinking straight, we are miserable in pig pens, and we long for the heavenly father's house. Now, you know, the boy could have gone home earlier, anytime. He didn't have to wait until he was hungry enough to, to eat slop. He could have gone home earlier. You know why he didn't. He knew that he would have to say the three most difficult words in any language. I was wrong. Or if you want to use a contraction, I'm sorry. Yes, the most difficult. Did you know that even in our own homes with people we love, it's hard to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. I see you nodding, so I, I assume you agree. Homecoming with God can never happen until we're willing to repent. And saying I'm sorry is the definition of repentance, and that is the front porch of the salvation house. Indeed, the very first word that Jesus ever preached in a recorded sermon, Matthew 4, the word is repent. And why is it so hard for us to do that? I'll tell you, our pride and our guilt get in the way. And we might never be able to make it to the Father's house were it not for the awesome love of God drawing us like a, a huge divine magnet. And the PowerPoint of that magnet is the cross. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, and he was referred to being lifted up on a cross, I will draw all people to me. And the very idea of the Son of God going to a cross for people like you and me is mind-boggling and heart-rending. Even a glance at the cross beckons us homeward. I don't know if you've noticed in the news in recent months, but the leaders of uh, communist China are on a crusade to take down all the crosses from the steeples of churches in China. Isn't it amazing that even those atheistic communists recognize the power of the cross and they want to try to get rid of it? What those communists don't understand is that while you can remove a cross from the steeple, you cannot snatch it from the heart of a believer. When I think about the cross, I'm reminded of a classic radio presentation by the favorite son of Minnesota, Garrison Keillor, you know, of radio and television fame. He told one time about a Thanksgiving he spent in rural Minnesota, and it reminded me of countless ones I'd spent in South Carolina. 
He said, all the extended family gathered at grandmother's house. Aunts, uncles, cousins, about 40. And he said, at noon, we all got in a big circle, held hands around this turkey-centered feast. And then said Keeler, grandmother made the mistake of calling on Uncle John to pray. And Keeler said, grandmother should have remembered that Uncle John could not pray without talking about the cross and crying. And he said, if there's one thing that makes grown people nervous is to witness a grown man crying. But, said Keeler, that's what grandmother did. Called on Uncle John to pray. And he began, and before long, sure enough, he was talking about the cross and crying. And Keeler said, all of us shifted uncomfortably from one foot to the other, staring at the floor, praying that Uncle John would hurry up and quit praying. And then Keeler made an observation that cuts absolutely to the quick. He said, all of us knew that Jesus had died on the cross for us, but Uncle John had never gotten over it. May God forbid that any of us would ever get over the cross. Even a glance at the cross beckons us homeward. Act 3 in the drama, verses 18 and 19, is the decision made in the pig pen. The boy decides to go home. Not only that, he even writes his homecoming speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just hire me on as one of your workers. Now, the decision about what to say to dad was just as important as the decision to go home. Because just suppose he had gone home with a different speech. Let's suppose that he had said to dad, uh, Papa, I did waste a bunch of money out there in the far country. But remember this, I had no mother around to nurture me, so you got to cut me some slack. Or suppose he had said, uh, yeah, Papa, I made some mistakes out there in the far country, but you know, it's partly your fault. You were always so consumed with this farm that you never spent quality time with me. Or suppose he had gone home and said, Papa, yeah, I've made some mistakes, but most kids my age do what I do. Come on, everybody has to sow some wild oats. I haven't done anything that unusual. If he had said any of those things, he would not really have been home even though his feet were planted firmly on the front porch. The glory of the prodigal son is his transparent honesty and his true repentance. No excuses, no deals, no bargaining, no rationalization. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. Let me tell you something. God's great heart melts when a person comes to him with plain, honest, genuine repentance. That brings us to the climatic act four of the drama. That's verse 20. And you're talking about emotional freight that Jesus packs into one sentence. This is it. But while he, the prodigal, was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. 
Now, I can really get into this fact four because I'm a dad. I can, I can identify with Papa. That father had looked up that dusty road on which the boy had left a hundred times, longing to see him coming back. He had left a, a lamp burning in the front room just in case he came home at night. He had had to constantly battle this urge to go to the far country, grab him by the scruff of the neck, and make him come home. But his head kept saying to his heart, no, that won't work. If he doesn't come home because he wants to, it won't be any good. And so Papa waited and paced and prayed. And he developed dark circles under his eyes because he couldn't sleep. And he began to look gaunt because he had no appetite. His insides were torn up. And then one day, out pacing on the front porch, he looked off in the distance maybe a half mile away up that dusty road, and somebody was coming, and there was something about the stride or the gait that looked familiar. But he didn't jump to conclusions. He had been fooled before. But he did shade his eyes against the setting sun and squint toward the sunset. And then he stepped down off the front porch and began walking slowly in that direction. And then he began to walk a little faster and a little faster and a little faster. And then he broke into a run as fast as his old arthritic knees would allow, ran all the way to the boy, enveloped him in his arms, so out of breath he couldn't say anything, but the boy said beautiful words. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. By that time, the father had recovered his breath. He started shouting orders to the servants who were running behind him. Quick, go get a robe for this boy. Go get a ring for his finger. Put shoes on his feet. Tell the cook, kill the fattened calf. We're going to have the biggest party this county has ever seen tonight because my boy has come home. You know, we call this the parable of the prodigal son, but it ought to be called the parable of the loving, forgiving father. And I know why the story touches our hearts, because every one of us has a little bit at least of the prodigal in him or her, and most of us have spent at least some time in some kind of pig pen or some kind of far country. And yet, even when there's been distance between us and God, we have felt a divine pull toward home, toward the Heavenly Father's love. Pastor James Moore of Houston has written a book with a fascinating title, If God Has a Refrigerator, Your Picture is on It. Let me close by telling you about my first homecoming experience that I can remember. I was 12 years old. My father was a pastor in upstate South Carolina in York. And somewhere I had picked up some faulty theology. And not at home and certainly not at church, but I had picked it up. I believed that anything I did wrong before I was 12 years old was not my fault. It was my parents' fault. But on my 12th birthday, an angel in heaven would pull my ledger down, Bill Balknight across the top, and there would be two columns, debits, credits. 
Every time I did something good, there would be a mark over here. Every time I did something bad, mark over there. And at the end of my life, they would total the columns. And if I scored 70 or above on my lifetime morals test, I'd go to heaven. 69 or below, straight to hell. And you never got a midterm grade, never knew where you were. I was not the worst kid in town, but I wasn't the best. I told some lies. I said some words you ought not to say. There were some people I despised. But I figured I could slide on in in the 70s, somewhere along in there. Now, Papa believed in having a revival every spring at his churches. And in our house, uh, whatever, wh what happened on Sunday morning was compulsory. You went to Sunday school and church unless you were sick. And if you said you were sick, you had to stay in your room all day, which tended to encourage honesty. But everything else was voluntary. And so Papa invited me to go to these evening revival services. And I look back on it with amazement that I went. I mean, I probably had homework, and uh, there were some TV programs on. Um, we Methodists call that prevenient grace. That's what it was. So I went, but I didn't intend to listen. I intended to sit on the back row with my friend Dan Smith and whisper about whatever 12-year-olds whisper about. I did not plan to listen. But Papa had, he had a few surprises for me. One, the preacher was a college student, Wofford College student. I was shocked that somebody that young was preaching. His name was Phil Jones. By the way, he is today a retired Methodist preacher living in Orangeburg. So that got my attention a little bit. But what really got my attention was what he said. It was like he had read my mind. He said, if anybody hopes to get to heaven by scoring 70 or above on your lifetime morals test, you're in bad shape because 70 is not a passing grade with God. Neither is 80. Neither is 90. Neither is 99. And then he quoted Jesus saying, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow, I thought. I am in a lot worse shape than I thought I was. And then Phil said, when God saw there was no way you could measure up to his standards. He loved you so much that he sent his one and only son who at the age of 33 voluntarily went to a cross to pay the penalty for your sin. And three days later, God raised him from the dead as a stamp of approval on what he had done and put out the best news the world has ever heard that if anybody will just admit, I'm a sinner and I can't fix it, but I believe Jesus paid the penalty for my sin, and I'm so grateful I invite the living Christ spirit to be the boss, the leader of my life. Phil said, if anybody does that, his sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. His place in heaven when he dies is reserved and guaranteed as a gift. And the Holy Spirit takes up residence in his mind and heart right away and begins to make a new person out of him or her. One, one week, one month, one year at a time. And then Phil said, if anybody wants to say yes to that, come on down. And off I went. And Dan was with me. I thought to myself, this is the best offer I have ever encountered. That night when I was riding home with my dad and sister, 
I knew something really big had happened, but I was not articulate enough to, to describe it. But oh, I can now. 60 plus years later, I can tell you what happened. I bumped into the grace of God and said yes to it, and it transformed my life. I experienced homecoming that night. Maybe you feel God calling you to a fresh homecoming experience. It can happen today. It can happen right now. No reason to wait until some pig pen gets absolutely miserable. Right now, the Savior is waiting at the very doors of our hearts. But those doors have to be opened from the inside by faith and repentance. In just a moment, I'm going to offer a prayer that expresses both repentance and faith. And I'm going to hesitate a few moments after each sentence to give you a chance to say those words silently if that's what your heart asks you to do. If you offer this prayer sincerely, you will have fulfilled the only requirement for abundant life now and eternal life hereafter. You will experience homecoming. Let us pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and need your forgiveness. I have strayed from you and have brought much pain on myself. I believe that you died for my sins. I want to turn from my sin and become a new person. I now invite you to rule my heart and life. I trust in you as Savior and pledge to follow you as Lord. Amen. We are going to sing now softly and tenderly. And uh, as we sing that hymn, Always know that this great altar is open. You may want to slip down here and confirm on your knees some commitment you have made to the Christ, and he will certainly see and receive you. Let's stand and sing. <laughs> 